0: Now let us turn with the Lord's help to consider words which we shall find in the portion of Scripture read. Revelation chapter 1. We may again read from verse 4. Revelation chapter 1 and reading at verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Particularly the words we find from the middle of verse 5, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So on. we read at the beginning of verse 4 here that John is writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. And the time of writing was a time of particular trial and difficulty and persecution for the church. John himself had been banished to the Isle of Patmos by the enemies of the church in the hope that he would not be able to influence for good the progression of the gospel in the hope that he would not be a leader and a guide to those who wanted to propagate the good news of Jesus Christ. But of course, although John himself was confined to the Isle of Patmos, the Lord is not confined Although John may have been bound, maybe not literally, he was bound nevertheless in being isolated from the church. Nevertheless, the word of God is not bound. And John receives a revelation from Christ that was to be a source of encouragement to the church In days of trial and persecution. Generally speaking, this is one very important strand of the book of Revelation. It is a book full of encouragement to the church of Christ. And do we not ourselves in our day need encouragement? Does the church in our day not need to take note of the encouragement? That God gives his people in his word, because the encouragement given to the church in the first century AD is relevant to the church in the 20th and going into the 21st century AD, because God's word is always a source of life and encouragement to God's people. And we see before we subdivide our text that the Lord. At the very beginning, here, send grace and peace unto the church. In verse 4, the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Isn't that a wonderful word of encouragement to the church? In the midst of its trials, feeling downcast, feeling possibly that the enemy is closing in and seeking to extinguish the light of the church. The Lord says, Grace and peace be unto you. And also, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. The seven spirits before the throne indicating to us the manifold operations and workings of the Spirit of God in the Church of God. He who is the Spirit of God is in the heart of God's people and he sends them a blessing as well. He sends strength. He sends encouragement. And in the way that he himself sees fit, He will give them all that they need to meet up with all the circumstances that this wilderness journey presents to them. Isn't that a great comfort to yourself today? And also from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. I won't say anything about the two previous points—the first, bego- the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead—but focus for a moment on the third thing that he says: the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. In another place, the Scripture says of our Lord that He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And however much the kings of the earth may rise up against the Church however much Satan with all his wiles will try and undo the work of the church as it is carried through in the strength of the Lord and according to God's word we must always remember that Jesus Christ as King Mediator reigns in the interests of his church and he will reign until all his enemies are placed under his feet And that is a great encouragement to the Lord's people in every age. And then coming to the particular point that he mentions from the middle of verse 5. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is a doxology. This is a song of praise. This is a song of thanksgiving to Christ the Savior. And there are three things I'd like to mention. First of all, the fact that he loved his church. Actually, the tense says that he continues to love. Not only did he love at one time, but He loved and continues to love. That's the first thing. And secondly, he washed the church in his own blood. And thirdly, what he made them. He made us kings and priests to God and his Father. The church is not an insignificant club of people. The church is the most significant community constituency in this whole world because they are a force to be reckoned with, because they are kings and priests made so by God himself. Maybe they don't feel like kings. Maybe they feel more like the worm Jacob because of the difficulties and trials and the oppression suffered at the hands of the enemy. But, from God's point of view, they are kings and priests. These are words of encouragement. Firstly then, the point he makes here, he loved us. Unto him that loved us. What kind of love was this? Is this? Well, surely it is a love to his own elect people. There is a sense in which God is kind to all his creatures. There is a sense in which some may say that God loves all men. But the love we have mentioned here is a love to his own elect, a love that focuses upon them because he has a particular purpose in mind. And the purpose that he has for his own people is to redeem them, to save them, to make them like unto the image of Christ, the Son of God. God loves with an everlasting love. This love has no beginning. This love has no ending. This love is so deep and so high and so wide and so broad that we cannot even measure it because it is the love of the infinite God for his people. Also, it is an unchanging and unchangeable love. It is a love that delights to bless these people. A love that focuses upon them to do them good and the greatest good possible unto him that loved us. This love is a love for individuals. It is a love for individuals to the extent that God says of his people that he is their husband. I have betrothed thee unto me. I have betrothed thee unto me forever. And you cannot say, generally speaking, that one betroths oneself to a mass of people as such. This betrothal must be between individuals. And that is what we have in the love of God to his people so that the Apostle Paul can say for himself he loved me and gave himself for me the Lord's love for you as a believer is a particular individual personal love he loved us and to what extent did he love us? Well, there are many answers to that question, but I'm going along this particular line. He loved us not only to unite us to himself in that bond of betrothal and marriage, but he loved us to the extent that he is willing to undertake our cause. I mean, that he is willing to address the deepest problem that we have. And the deepest and most significant problem that we have is that we are sinners. We are divorced from God. By the fall, we lost our communion with God. We are under his wrath and curse, liable to all the sin and misery of this life to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. We are tottering as it were on the brink of eternal destruction and that is our case. That is our danger. But he loved and he betrothed and he came to undertake that cause. He came to assume our nature. He took human nature to himself, uniting that human nature to his eternal passion, so that when Mary brought forth her firstborn child, he was none other than the eternal Son of God in human nature. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Who the eternal son of God of course. The second person of the Trinity. He was given. Unto us who take our nature. But he came to be under the law. That he might redeem them who were under the curse of the law. He came to address our problem. He came to give himself a sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. Oh, what love is this. Unto him that loved us. No wonder John here lodges this wonderful Savior and rises in this hymn and song of praise unto him that loved us. However many gather together and show hatred to us, however many may be spiteful towards us, however many difficulties they may manufacture and present for our undoing, He loved us. And what is more, as I mentioned, He continues to love. It is not a love that was a fleeting thing. It was a love that continues. Having loved his own people who were in the world, John says, in the Gospel, he loved them unto the end. Now that may mean particularly in connection with the Lord's life in this world, that he continued to love them right through to the point at which he declared from the cross, it is finished, it is finished. He loved them to that end that he gave himself utterly and completely and exclusively for them. And was it not a marvel? Despite the way the enemies came to try and prevent him from fulfilling his mission, the devil tried this way and that way. Nevertheless, the Lord fulfilled his mission. He went over all the obstacles. He wasn't turned this way or that way. He wasn't pressurized to stop three-quarters of the way. No, he loved them to the end. And he continues to love and to cherish. He embraces his people, embraces their cause, encourages them to go on. Fear not, for I am with thee. And as we mentioned already, he said to the disciples, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, as the one who loves them, as the one who is married to them, in the highest possible meaning of that word. Marriage is in this world at for time. This union between Christ and his people is a spiritual and eternal one. And we see the Church of Christ in the Revelation as the bride adorned for her husband. In the Revelation that shows us a glimpse of the eternity into which the Church is going, the glorious eternity which the Church will spend. She will spend it as the wife. The wife of the Lamb. He loves her eternally. In heaven they will hunger no more. Neither will they thirst anymore. Neither will the sun light on them nor any heat of persecution or tribe. But the Lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes unto him that loved us. Secondly, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now that brings something new into our consideration of this love. Because by virtue of the way we have these words brought before us we realize that he loved the church that was in the words that may be appropriate to this verse he loved her in her unwashed condition. He loved her in her unattractive condition. He loved her in her contaminated condition. He loved her while she was yet his enemy. He loved her while she was still full of enmity, unclean, impure. God does things differently to men. When a young woman wants to endear herself to a young man, she will try and Make yourself as attractive as possible. You see that in the book of Esther. When Esther went into King Ahasuerus, along with the others whom Ahasuerus desired to see, and from which company he wanted to choose a wife, because Vashti, his wife, had refused to comply with his command To come and show herself off to the nobles of the land. And you see that it is there written that Esther went through a particular process of preparation and beautifying before she went into the presence of the king. But the church of Christ is different. It is not for anything that Christ saw in her that he loved her. It is not for any beauty that she might innately have possessed that he loved her it was not for any particular achievements that she may have had that he loved her she had no achievement she had no innate beauty she had no attractiveness because she was dead in trespasses and sin she was far from him rebellious in every fiber of our being, against him, and these, these sentiments are expressed by others, who said of Christ, we shall not have this man reign over us. And to him that loved us, and washed us, while we were yet enemies, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He washed those who were putrefied with sin. He beautified those who were scarred with sin. He gave them all that they needed so that they would be beautified and make like unto himself. He washed us from our sin in his own blood. What does this mean? Well, surely the blood of Christ means something particular. I cannot wash anyone in my blood, neither can you. But Christ's blood is significant because it is Sacrificial blood. He gave himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile his people to God. You see, sin, as it were, bound these people up. Another translation for the word washed here can be loosed. He loosed us from our sins in his own blood. And sin attaches and the guilt of sin attaches to individual people because the law binds sin upon them. The demands of the law unfulfilled and unanswered they automatically bind people in sin and how then were these people to be loosed from this bondage loosed from this guilt washed from this impurity of sin well there was only one way and that way is highlighted here that he washed them or loosed them from their sins in his own blood. How can that be? Well, the words, I believe, are speaking of his work of atonement. The words are speaking of the sacrifice that he gave for them. So that on the basis of Christ's, magnifying the law, making the law honourable, giving the law every requirement that it asked for, on behalf of these people, he satisfied the demands of the law. And it's as if the bonds or bands of the law must yield regarding these people, because Christ answered all these requirements on their behalf. the other way of looking at it is this that Christ gave his blood that they might be made clean the fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness that fountain is available that fountain is opened in the death of Christ. And the words we have here are speaking particularly, I believe, of the cleansing or washing of justification rather than the cleansing or washing of sanctification. That Christ opened the fountain and those who come to avail themselves by faith of this shed blood will know that they are justified on the basis of what Christ has done there is a fountain the hymn writer said filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains he washed us from our sins in his own blood have we come to that blood yet have we come to avail ourselves of the power and efficacy of the blood of Christ of his finished work That is basically what the blood of Christ means. His sufferings unto death for his people. We mustn't be too literal about his blood. Although his blood was a literal reality and his pouring of his blood was a literal and historical occurrence in the world, we must remember that when the scripture speaks to us Here and elsewhere of the blood of Christ. It is speaking particularly of his sufferings unto death as the sacrifice of his people, the finished work that he came to perform on their behalf. And now he washed his people from their sins in his own blood. When does this become? effectual in your own life. Well it comes becomes effectual in your life when you trust him and believe in him as your only saviour. The merit, the efficacy, the power to cleanse your sin becomes personal to you and to me when we come to our faith knowledge of him. We spoke yesterday morning of the woman who had the issue of blood and we suggested that that resembled her state in sin and corruption but once she judged Christ the power of all that he was as saviour as it were channeled through to her dealing with her problem and cleansing her sin and so we see here he loved us and washed us in his own blood Thirdly, what he made us, what he made his people, he made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Mentioned already, how significant these words may be to our church, downcast, to our church suffering persecution. In the days of John. He says. You are kings. And you are priests. In what sense are the people of God kings? Well the people of God are kings. Because they have been given a kingdom. They have received. A kingdom of grace. Which cannot be taken away. From them. Isn't that a marvelous thought? Whatever else you might lose. In this world. You may lose all your money. All your property. You may lose your health. Your strength. Whatever else. You will never lose what the Lord by grace has given you. By way of an eternal inheritance. Fear not little flock. It is your father's good pleasure. To give you the kingdom you may not feel like a king or a queen but actually this is what the Lord makes his people they are significant people they are people who have great possessions and as they exercise their kingship in what areas do they do so Well, they have power over sin. Or you say, that's not right. I feel sin beats me on every turn. Well, let's put it this way, that you have power over sin that you did not have in your unconverted days. By grace, by the Spirit of God, you are able to mortify the deeds of the body that you might live. And sin does not have real dominion over you. The reason for that is that you are united to Christ and that his grace operates in your life and heart to this extent. I know that you sometimes feel that sin weakens you to the point where you give in. That may be so. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin. You come and look at him in view of your sinning against God, and you know that you have a friend who is a priest, who is a great high priest, and who himself is the propitiation or the sacrifice that atoned. For your sin. And then you can look with confidence. At sin and say. My sin is forgiven. And really there is ultimately. A complete assurance given to me. That sin will be. Under my feet. I will not be under it. Under it. Ultimately. One more thing he also made his people priests. As priests, they offer up spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise. They don't up- offer up sacrifices to atone. They don't offer up sacrifices to make reconciliation. They don't perpetuate the f- sacrifice of Christ like the Roman Catholic Church perform in the Mass The people of God have no part in that because Christ himself has finished it all and he with one sacrifice has forever made perfect them that are sanctified. Once and for all he made atonement. But the way the people of God are priests as I mentioned is through their sacrifices of prayer and praise. Here he says even their bodies are given As living sacrifices to God. Day by day. Another way of looking at this. Kings and priests may be translated. A kingdom of priests. In other words. All of God's people are a people who pray. And all of God's people are a people who have a reason to praise. And we see John here giving us an indication of the way he saw things and the reasons he saw to praise and magnify the Lord for all he is and all he has done for his people. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Unto him who has made us kings and priests. Unto God and his Father To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And may we all be able to enter into that doxology even this morning. Let us pray. Thank thee, O Lord, for thy kindness to us. and pray that thou wouldst help and strengthen us in all that we need to do in thy name. Continue with us, we pray thee. Continue to enlighten our minds upon thy word and give us to know thy strength and enabling. Forgive our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.